The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Last year, one of the biggest venture capital operators in Australia moved over and set up offices in New Zealand. This company, Blackbird, is famous for backing big successes like Canva, but has also been involved in supporting Kiwi ones from very early on, like Sunfed Foods, the maker of the plant protein meat alternatives, whose CEO, Sharma Lee, has been a great guest on this podcast before. In fact, the Blackbird partner that led the Sunfed deal is the very same who's come over to set up the local office and is with us today. Sam Wong started her career at a prestigious law firm, did well but didn't quite love it, and left, moved home, worked minimum wage jobs to pay her way, and got into startup life. She ran product for a high-growth e-commerce company, founded a company and went through the VC cycle with it, and got into working at Blackbird. Since then, Blackbird VC has invested in a bunch of local companies, like Ask Nicely, Freightfish, AOR, Partly, Multitudes and Mint, announced it's raised a lot more money, partnered with the government to invest, and it's run big events for the local startup ecosystem. To talk moving from law to startup world to VC, what it takes to be a great company and to be a great venture capitalist, and backing local, Sam Wong joins us now. Denakwe, thank you for being here. Thanks very much, Simon. Hey, so tell us about how you did make that jump from law into being uh, in the startup world. Um... Oh, like the short answer is it was sort of a rambling sort of experimental journey. Um, I think in the few years before I actually quit law, I had a lot of side projects, side hustles. I sort of had other interests and just just did them, basically. There was no strategy to it. So in the sort of um, 08, 09 era, I, you know, dabbled with a lot of like online media things like this is ancient history now. It was, you know, online media newsletters, that kind of thing. Um, And I was also very interested in in, um, online retail, actually all sorts of um, retail and how retail would be shaped by the internet. Um, And remember, this is an era when, um, you know, it was like in the headlines that, you know, 
I, I'm not sure what the Kiwi equivalents are, but sort of Harvey Norman is the big one in, in Australia. You know, Jerry Harvey, the founder of Harvey Norman, was saying that, you know, people would never buy electronics online or, or, or you know, David Jones, which is the, the big department store, you know, was steadfast about how, you know, bricks and mortar retail experiences just, you know, um, were the bee's knees and, and could never be replicated online. And that just seemed to be like completely bizarre and, and wrong to me. So I, f- I found that all very fascinating. And so I did lots of things on the side to sort of basically, you know, um, feed my own curiosity, but also kind of build up a pattern of what I might be interested in getting into. And then I sort of approached a point, I was like maybe four years in, I was like maybe a year away from senior associate, which is when the money actually gets pretty good and the golden handcuffs get, you know, fastened on you for life potentially (laughs) Um, and just figured I had to do something um, and that I was getting so much more energy and and enjoyment from all these things I was doing on the side after hours around my job that I would just give myself a chance to do it and I so I took a a one-year leave of absence and and sort of as you mentioned in the intro like I moved home I you know I'd literally just bought my first apartment and had a mortgage and 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 whatnot but um, I moved home with my mom and I, I sort of went around to my network and asked people, you know, um, does anybody know anyone in startups? I have no relevant skill set, but um, uh, I'm willing to work for free and, and keen to learn. And um, two opportunities in startups came out of the woodwork and another one in in, in more traditional retail. And um, I worked seven full days and one night a week to, uh, to kind of juggle it all. But, you know, within three months that had turned into a full-time role at a, you know, series A stage startup, um, first in marketing and then in product and a year later I'd moved to France to launch their business over there and yeah things can happen really quickly in startups if you if you get on a high growth trajectory. Yeah wow there's that great line you know when you're offered a seat on a rocket ship you don't ask <laughs> if it's a window seat or what seat Yeah you it try is. and angle for the yeah. for, for the high growth one right or, or, or try and find the rocket ship um, you know amongst them and when people ask me for advice ab- about getting into startups now I, I think um you know, you know, really being deliberate around what type of company and what stage of company um, you go for is is a really big part of the uh, the equation. And coming from law, and you know, top top law firm, um, that's a real battle to kind of get into, and it's a big kind of process to go through the law degree and and the like. Did people say that you were you, you know? Did people think you were bananas to step sideways to go and try and work at unproven startups? I'm really not sure. You know, I'm sure. Maybe, probably. I mean, I actually think it's less of a battle than um, people maybe think. So, you know, at least in, in Australia, I'm sure it's the same here, you know, you, you kind of approach your fourth year of your second last year of, of the law degree. Everybody applies for clerkships over the summer, these three-month clerkships. If you don't do a terrible job, they offer you a graduate role. At least this was, you know, my experience in the sort of 05, 06 kind of era. Um, uh, and... Uh, so, you know, 80% of your cohort will be offered a graduate job. Once you're in a graduate job, you, you, you just, you know, it, like the path is kind of set for you. So it's sort of, it's hard to get into law. It's hard to kind of, um, I guess, stay at a certain level of performance through your degree. But I guess once you get a clerkship, it almost feels like the, the railroads are set for you. Um, and actually it becomes a hard thing to leave the railroads because you've been put into such a structured pathway and environment. Um, so I think that doing things on the side, you know, helped me re- like be aware of the fact that there were there were paths other than law. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think my mum was like, 
Maybe what, maybe try in house counsel or something, you know? Why, why are you moving home? <laughs> I know. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think there was a, it was a particularly alarming period for her. When, um, but Things are going really well for you, love. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in terms of, I saw, I saw an article, that, a great article you wrote, if anyone's interested, about that journey into VC uh, that's on Medium. Uh, talking about how you learnt those skills in e-commerce when you, you, as you just said, you didn't come with the skill set um, for for the high growth, but you just kind of taught yourself and you just decided to learn it all. And whether it was SEO or, or you know, emerging kind of things and kind of um, online marketing, just kind of read some blogs, give it a go, give it a try. But what, what, like the crazy thing was, and that's, I mean, this still holds true today, right? That most of the things that you you know you need to learn are on the internet. Mm. You just have to, you know, look for it and apply yourself to learning it and having a, a strong enough reason to learn. And certainly, like, you know, the incentive of moving out of my mum's house one day was a strong was a strong one to kind of, you know, um, uh, force that. But, yeah, again, like in that, like, 08, 09, uh, 2010 era, um, there was no place you, you could go and learn these skills. I mean, it was pre-General Assembly, pre-Udemy, pre-all these things. Um, you couldn't have gone – well, you couldn't have gone to university and, and learn this stuff either because, remember, the titans of industry were saying that online was not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way to learn was through doing. Um, and most of the people, few people in the world doing, were also writing about it and sharing their knowledge. And then, you know, that combination of, like, learning from what people were writing about plus doing it in real life and making mistakes and iterating and so on um, on the job. Well, I mean, it was very, very fortunate um, to be able to do that. And I still say... To people today, you know, who want to get into startups or, or or what or whatever, just 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 do it because you'll learn so much from trying to do it um, that will kind of get you in the direction that you need to go. Yeah, and it's so true. It's all on the internet. I remember when I first started working at a SaaS company, having come from the world of uh, kind of traditional advertising stuff, and then it was like, oh, well, you know, how can I learn about SaaS? And then you jump on, and there are these wonderful blogs Mm -hmm. written by the absolute best people in the world where they'll go into every single Mm -hmm. metric strategy you know growth hacking this that and the other like the whole thing it's all it's all there it's all there and it's all free Mm. yeah absolutely well yeah Uh, and tell me about then your journey into becoming a founder um, well, I, I sort of spent three years with, with Surf Stitch, so, and the last two of which were in France. And, and so that um, project was, you know, a, a huge sort of mini CEO apprenticeship in a way. You know, we had this um, a footprint of something that was working in Australia and we wanted to, um, you know, expand the market um, uh, opportunity for ourselves. And, and so I, you know, hired the team and moved over to France and, and, set, and set up our operations there, which was, you know, end-to-end sort of everything from buying warehouse logistics fulfillment in five languages five currencies for <laughs> i think eight different sites and mobile strategy everything in all in the space of two years and it was just crazy um but after that sort of journey um uh, which was a lot propelled by by billabong and the joint venture with billabong um you know i was sort of waiting for, to you know rinse and repeat in the u.s and and you know billabong went through its own sort of corporate um strategy changes and I just thought like I think maybe my learning has plateaued and the next challenge for me is to to kind of actually found something and originally my plan was to go and do an MBA because I thought I wasn't ready to um, inverted commas start a startup but 
Um, I went and sat in on a bunch of um, classes at the London School of Economics, which is where I thought I wanted to do my MBA, um, in their entrepreneurship class. And um, oh, it was a room full of like super smart people, but like with the greatest of respect, they had no idea what they were talking about. Like they were talking theory and I had been living that experience for the last three years. And I just suddenly realised that, which I should have already known, um, that um, some things you can only learn by doing. And so um, I did what, you know, I think, you know, probably the Lean Startup and every every other, you know, startup blog had ever said at that point, which is to, you know, build something around what you know. And so I started a, um, a legal services marketplace called Capacity HQ, but it was a B2B one. So we were sort of selling uh, a lawyer's time to other lawyers, um, trying to basically solve the the supply and demand curve within, you know, professional professional services, which was a, a thing I knew, turned out I, I um, was more passionate about solving the the lawyer side of the problem, as in the, the person working on the marketplace, than um, the, you know, sort of corporate law, law firm. And that's a really important thing I learned around marketplaces is like you have to have empathy for both sides of, of, of the marketplace. And you also need incredible density of, of, of supply and you don't get that in law and you definitely don't get that in law in Australia. So, yeah, um, but that was, sorry, a long, a long, a long <laughs> answer to that. It's like a number of listings thing for how successful your marketplace Also, is. you need commodity of mm. supply. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's um, sort of often underappreciated. You know, why some sort of... Um, like marketplaces work or like you know, Uber is the, the classic example. What do you need to be, a, you know, uh, on the supply side of Uber? You need to have access to a car. You don't even need to own it, right? Because other people have solved that problem. And you need to know how to drive. How, like what proportion of the population does that, you know, um, apply to? Whereas something like legal services, you know, when you're looking to hire a lawyer, particularly on the B2B side, you have a very specialist, you know, you want like a real estate lawyer, lawyer with experience in commercial leasing, five to seven years experience at only these blue chip kind of firms. You know, there may be like dozens of those people max in the whole kind of country. Um, And then you need some subset of that on your marketplace. It's just like a really difficult problem to solve um, from a supply aggregation perspective. Yeah. And having gone through that journey of founding a company and learning that maybe the market fit wasn't there in a market the size of Australia uh, and, and they're not continuing with it. What, like how beneficial is that to you having been through kind of, um, you know, being like, uh, you know, running a territory and setting up and being on that high growth journey and then going through the process of an idea not getting there. How useful are those two different experiences in dealing with, um, with your role today? Yeah, so, um, you know, there are two main things I took out of that. So, like, I would wrap it around this idea that, like, I took that startup through um, a, a program called Startmate, the accelerator program that's sort of under the Blackbird um, umbrella and was founded by Nikki Shivak, who co-founded Blackbird Ventures. Um, and that was my first foray into startup land really in Australia. So when I joined SurfStitch, there wasn't really a startup. Um, ecosystem. Um, And that had changed by 2015. So it really immersed me in this community of like-minded people and that sort of changed the trajectory of my life forever. I'd say the other thing is that it gave me deep, deep founder empathy. And I think this is really underappreciated. The journey of a founder psychologically, emotionally is really, really tough. Um, uh, And uh, I think, you know, I, I, I tap on that in terms of how I 
how I treat founders, um, uh, and, and we all do at Blackbird because um, we've all, all all the partners have been through that founder journey. Um, so that's a really important point. Um, I think um, the second thing is um, I know what success looks like and what it doesn't look like um, and what it feels like. And I realised that my ambition was, I mean, I could have created a good maybe five, 10 mil turnover business, but my ambition was to create something much, much bigger than that. I thought I had much more potential to impact the world than that. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and so that's what I want to devote my life to, I suppose, those, those sort of big impact, big ambition businesses and ideas. Um, uh, yeah, and, and so I learned that, I guess, through, through that process too. And one thing that you mentioned there when you were thinking of going and doing the MBA because you didn't know if you were ready yet, uh, another point in that re- really great Medium post that you made was that uh, women especially feel that they're not qualified enough or not ready for a job and that holds them back from just taking the leap while, you know, you don't have to look far to see millions of examples of men who are promoted way above their ability and don't let it bother them at all. Yeah, so, I mean, that's just research, right? Research shows us that that women won't apply for jobs unless they kind of feel like they, you know, um, tick every, you know, bullet point in the JD, which is why it's really important not to have JDs at a complete shopping list of nice-to-haves if you you want a diverse pool of candidates. I think the realisation for me was um, that you just uh, put yourself forward. Say, you can only um, get you know, the opportunities you put yourself forward for. So just put yourself forward for them and and don't wait um, uh, for permission. Don't wait for someone to open the door for you. Just just, just walk through it because um, you'll be surprised by what opportunities can come your way if you do that. I guess um, like I, I guess what I mean by that is like, okay, so I'll give you a couple, couple of examples, right? So the doing things you're not qualified for. Um, I was not qualified um, to work in startups in in 2010, right? Like running a couple of online media blogs does not qualify you to run, you know, um, SEO or email marketing or product for an e-commerce startup turning over $30, $40 million a year. Um, But um, I got my foot in the door. I proved that I could learn quickly, um, at least quick enough to stay on the growth trajectory of the company, uh, which actually turns out it counts for a lot. Um, And then, you know, just kind of keeping up with the growth of the company meant that I could then, you know, move into the product role, um, uh, move into the, you know, you know, had enough context on the whole business and the and the opportunity to go and, you know, launch it in Europe. If I hadn't sort of um, taken sort of a, a step out of law and tried to do this very small thing, being email marketing at the time, that I wasn't qualified for, I would never have had the opportunity to then move into product and then move into you know, launching the European region. And none of those experiences, if I hadn't had any of those experiences rather, I don't think I would have had the confidence to start a startup um, myself. And if I hadn't started the startup, I would never have kind of gotten into Startmate and met Nikki and the Blackbird community, which meant that I wouldn't have joined, you know, Blackbird, which would mean that I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you today kind of investing in startups. Um, So you you sort of... Um, opportunities compound on themselves, but you do have to put yourself in the path of of um, serendipity or luck, I think, as well. Yeah, and, and give yourself permission that you do have the goods and you can do it and you don't have to wait until, you, you know, you're, you're overqualified <laughs> to, yeah. to, to back yourself. And also it's like at some point, like, who cares what 
like there's this like sort of a big you know ubiquitous like other people think what other people think you're qualified of and uh, about and that becomes a substitute for what you think you're um, qualified for and I think it's just much more interesting to think about what you want to do and just do what you want and you know you know let let that be your guide I suppose. Yeah, one of the coolest things about the startup world is that, you know, if you're truly doing a world-changing company, there isn't a tried-and-true path. There isn't a way to have done it. And that learning skill um, becomes becomes so important. And you t- tell, tell me about kind of like, what what do you do? So venture capital is one of these things that, um, you know, there's kind of quite a mystique around it. And there's, you know, shows like Silicon Valley that have kind of... Um, pulled out the most extreme elements of it, although occasionally it does feel like a documentary. (laughs) Uh, uh, But it's got this mystique around it. Like, what do you do as a venture capitalist every day working for for Backpit? Um, Well, it's a lot of meetings. Um, It's a horrific number of meetings, actually. And the great irony is most of us are introverts and and we spend sort of six or seven hours a day in meetings. And and that is meeting lots of different meetings. A lot of people think it's like meeting meeting founders, which it is. It's a big part of the job. But um, it's also um, spending a lot of time with your existing portfolio companies, spending time with people elsewhere in the ecosystem, um, with people who may found companies one day who uh, you would like to nurture as potential talent for your um, your portfolio companies to hire. We also run our own business and have uh, one-on-ones and, and team management and all, all of those kind of obligations as well. You know, Blackbird is now 30, 30 people and we've tripled in size in sort of 18 months. So we're going through our own sort of Series A scaling type, um, uh, you know, uh, challenges as, as, you know, same as startups. So, um it's a lot of meetings. And then, you know, it's hopefully a lot of um, reading and thinking too. Um, you know, the trick in venture is um, you have to be right and you all have to be right where everyone else is wrong. You have to be contrarian because otherwise you're you sort of um, – you, you're not making sort of alpha investments. And so part of that involves thinking about um, the future and, and, and what is different um, and looking for signals around, you know, where future opportunities could come from. Um, and, and to do that, you sort of do need space – to, to read and to think and um, make connections between ideas as well. And so much of it is, you know, living in the future. Um, but maybe we could go through the story of one of your um, investments that a lot of people listening to this would know, this, the Sunfed story, which has had a couple of years to kind of prove out. Yep. But when you invested in it, the idea of um, pea, plant, protein, uh, being a big substitute, being in every supermarket... Um, was, was still very, very unsure. Um, the ability to be able to um, make the product, uh, to scale it up, or, you know, so many unsure things. What was it about Sunfed that, like, um, led you to want to back that? And it was a big investment at, 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 at that time. Um, and, yeah, and then how's it, how's it gone from there? Well, we had, um, well, I had done sort of a lot, a lot of work around um, sort of the f- future of how we were going to feed, you know, one and a half billion extra people, you know, on a 10 to 15 year time horizon on Earth without sort of killing the planet first. Um, so that was the starting point. And I was looking at both cell-based and plant-based meat, actually, and I made a, a cell-based meat investment um, around, the, around the same time. Um, and, and we've done a lot of both since since then as well um uh, to me it didn't seem strange at all to perfectly honest that people would eat plant-based meat like once you could if you could produce a product that was comparable to meat at a price point that was you know also comparable and had a line of sight to parity um with meat um you, you just had to look at kind of like you know very 
you know, rudimentary indicators like, um, you know, search terms for uh, Google trend search terms for veganism and vegetarianism and all the surveys show and flexitarianism and meat free Mondays. And, you know, it was becoming like a social movement. Um, but the, uh, the products available on the market were ridiculously limited. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the Sunfed product um, really, you know, w- was a st- you know, a standout product compared to anything else on the market in terms of the, you know, the, the chicken um, substitute um, product. And, um, you know, when we looked at the sort of sell-through data as well, um, you know, it was really clear that it was just becoming a staple in people's, you know, you know, grocery, you know, shopping list, you know, every week or, or whatever frequency they were just, you just kept buying it. And then, so that was an important point. And then I think, you know, more broadly, um, you know, it's a, it's a slightly weird thing, less weird now, but definitely three years ago, it was sort of see, seemed to be a weird idea for a technology venture capital fund to invest in a food product, right? It sits on a grocery aisle. But if you, you think about it, um, we're obsessed with um, products that have high lifetime values and repeat purchase rates, right? We're always looking at the engagement of a product. Um, and protein is a staple of most of the world's diet. Um, and if you could see that um, a product had customer love um, and was the sort of thing that someone could expect to consume several times a week um, on a lifetime value of, I don't know, how you know how long a human's going to live, you yeah, know. L- uh, longer if they're eating pea protein. Yeah, 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 it seems so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, on the lifetime of decades, um, that you know, has the ingredients to be a a great business. Um, And so that's what we were excited about. And since we've invested, you know, when we invested, they'd sort of been in countdown uh, for maybe six months and I think only in the North Island or maybe just started in the South Island. And since then, they've kind of um, expanded into food service. Mad Max, obviously, they've um, uh, expanded into Australia um, nationwide with Coles. Um, they've released the bacon product and, and you know, they have more um, coming as well. So, um, you know, tremendous growth in, in the category um, as well as the business. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice. And together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape. From the gourmet. Ooh la la. To your more hearty tucker. Kiwi onion dip anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts. And does a, um, you know, it's it's still on the way to being a success, but an obvious success. Uh, how does having a success like that help with uh, deal flow, like, you know, founders coming to see you? Or, um, you know, how, how important is it to, to have kind of picked, picked a winner like that uh, for, for the business? Well, I mean, I think, you know... Um Founders talk, right? And so Sunfed wasn't our first Kiwi investment. Our first was Ask Nicely and, and, and then our second was Sunfed and then our th- th- third or, or, sh- or shortly after that was, was Freightfish. Um, and I think, um, you know, founder circles, the word of mouth spreads, um, if you're decent to deal with um, and a good partner to founders, um, you know, naturally they will speak to other founders and, and say, go speak to Blackbird, go, see, go speak to Sam. Um, and, um, and and that, you know, referral is, is, is super important um, um, for being able to kind of find the next interesting, um, next interesting company. And that's a very big part of how we build our business. It's, it's around, you know, community-led 
um, initiatives. Yeah, like what kind of things are you looking for? Like, do you actually just want someone who's got like a crazy big idea to kind of drop you an email? Like, uh, what what kind of companies do, do does your company invest in back? Yeah, so I mean, we're not prescriptive around that sort of stuff. I think um, what I've learned over the years is like the best founders will have the ideas. They have something in their their history or their life experience which is, um, uh, you know led them to that point and so being too prescriptive means that you kind of can have blinkers onto the next big opportunity but you know the central thing we're looking for is you know a a very big ambitious mission something that um uh will play out over over the course of a decade and and turn into you know hopefully a really big company so we have this idea of um sorry i'll replay that um uh so at blackbird we're looking to back um uh, wild hearts with the wildest of ideas right from the beginning. So uh, wild heart is is the founder, is the person doing their life's work, um, something that, you know, then they're going to persist at, you know, over the course of a decade that, you know, makes sense in the narrative of, of their life about why they have a unique insight into the problem, into the solution, into how to distribute it, what sort of team um, you should build around that, what sort of culture um, as well, um, all of that sort of stuff. And that comes first because... Um, founders come up with great ideas it's not vcs that sit on thrones that come up with great ideas that you know um you know founders then build around it's the other way around and so we we're always looking for just you know really ambitious um founders with with interesting ambitious ideas and follow and following that scent um uh, but the idea does have to be compelling um and that's because i think in you know in the very beginning um there is nothing right there's an idea of something and a, and, and a founder or, or founders and they have to attract an, an amazing team um, to come and build the product and then build the company and, and, and so on and so forth. So the idea has to be very ambitious and compelling um, and even probably strange. Um, uh, so, you know, founders and then and then big ambitious idea. And, and big means, you know, um, on some sort of seven to ten year scale into the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Um, which is obviously a very, very high bar. And it doesn't have to be a high probability of happening. It just has to be not zero. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in terms of like, I saw also um, that part of the mission is around having, part of that kind of an investment thesis is around having a really high gross margin, which, um, you, you know, uh, h- how do you describe that? And, and what, what kind of um, things give a gross margin? So I think we've way? softened on that, right? So we definitely have invested in things that are lower gross margin, but what we care about um uh, on that score is the payback period on on building the technology. So, for instance, you know, um, if you're if you are building machinery to build a product that you sell, and the product itself is actually low margin, um, how much does it cost to build the machine or buy the machine? How quickly can it pay itself back? Um, those are the things that we care about. So we're like less prescriptive around the gross margin. Obviously, higher is better, but that will sort of necessarily constrain you most of the time to to software. Um, and there are just awesome businesses to be built outside of software. And the price of building things outside of software is coming down all the time. And on a 10-year time frame, you have to believe that um, the, the, the cost curve goes down. And in terms of like the kind of things that you invest in, I saw somewhere that you'd written, um, you know, we're not afraid of being wrong and investments not making money. Talk me through that um, that kind of concept. Yeah, well, so um, v- 
venture capital investing is portfolio investing, right? So in one fund, um, you're expecting 50% of your companies to not return capital. So the money you put into the company doesn't come back to you. And that is the model. Um, so you, what the important part of, of doing that then is, is to get a diversified enough portfolio so that the ones who do succeed, succeed on such a big scale that they pay back all the losses and then also produce profit, hopefully good profit, um, for your investors. And in fact, I think there's you know some reports out there that show the best performing funds actually have a higher loss rate. So 60% of companies don't return com- uh, return capital. Um, so it, you actually, ha- your risk tolerance is built into the system. If you're optimizing for non-zero outcomes, the chances of uh, you're, you're by definition investing in very safe bets and a very safe bet is probably something that other investors have also in, invested in. And so the, you know, the alpha gets kind of like petered away um, through that. And so, y- you know, you you do need to kind of um, be comfortable with being wrong, um, but also know, um, you know, how to balance out a portfolio so that you're not over levered um, in, in, to too much risk in any particular company. And does it become harder the bigger you get as, um, you know, the, the Blackbird kind of family of funds has some, something like a billion dollars or something to deploy, which uh, seems like quite a lot of money. And does it get harder to kind of get good returns when you have to deploy um, so, so, you know, when you have so many funds to deploy. Yeah, so um, so that, that's the headline number of that um, funds raised. So um, right now we're actually investing a 60 mil New Zealand fund, which is quite modest, I think. Um, um, it's it's good, but, but but it's, you know, it's a it's a quite a modest size fund. Um, and then in Australia we have um, a $175 million early stage fund and then, a, you know, 400 something million dollar, I forget the final number, um, uh, follow on fund. And the follow on fund can invest in any of the companies from the New Zealand fund and the Australian company, uh, Australian fund. Um, so, so any company we've invested in or will invest in um, for the next two years, it, it, it can go into the follow on fund. And that, that some of those companies are really mature, right? They are, um, they are unicorns, they are raising funds by the, you know, rounds by the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it's not actually like, it's not hard to kind of deploy a $400 million fund at, you know, 30, 50 mil checks at a time. Um, uh, uh, on the, obviously you do have to believe that the returns are there. Um, but I think, you know, you know, it's not actually, you know, when you see companies generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, more than doubling year on year, it's not hard to imagine, um, at least for us, how, how that might, um, how the returns might be made there. Um, and then, you know, on the early stage side, um, all it means was, you know, and in our first fund, um, we could only really do like one round um, because it was a small fund. Now we can sort of do two to three rounds um, for a good chunk of the portfolio where the conviction is there. And that's the big kind of, um, you know, so much of the external media when people see about VC is when funds are raised or when an IPO happens. But all of the middle bit uh, is kind of ignored by the media where actually when you raise money, like that's probably this one of the you know happiest but also scariest moments because you've just made millions of promises to people and then you've got to go and deliver on it. And it's that ability to keep getting followed on and, and keep building across time that's kind of more important than that that, that kind of Are you of talking about from the company moment. perspective or yeah. the VC perspective? Yeah, co- company and kind yeah. of the way that the media sees it. Oh, I mean, um, yeah, the, it's the work starts once you've raised the money, right? You raise the money 
to execute on the plan. And in fact, it's very hard to raise money if you don't know how to articulate how you'll spend it. And um, But yeah, absolutely. But it's this big milestone. Um, it's a big signal to the market, um, you know, around what your plans are. Um, I would say as well, like, you know, 70, 80% of, of the money that, com- that companies raise are to hire. And so it's really useful from that signal perspective, um, you know, for talent and so on to sort of say, hey, you know, we're doing some great stuff. These people believe in us. We've got some money to hire. Come and join the journey and and help us achieve the mission. And since moving over to New Zealand, how's that been going for you? Because you've made a number of investments lately. Um, Yeah, so I moved over in in January. I I, um, came back from maternity leave, moved over, well, I moved over then, came back from maternity leave in in January. Um, And then, you know, the the borders closed (laughs) and and the world changed as as we knew it. But um, uh, it's, you know, it's been an amazing year. I mean, uh, we have made four investments uh, now, out of out of this fund, um, uh, you know, maybe may, maybe five um, before the year is out, um, and uh, in all sorts of um, different areas, you know, from uh, consumer consumer electronics, consumer hardware to software to um, deep tech or clean tech, um, it's it's been super awesome um, to see the diversity of ideas and um, ambition. I would say of the founders that that we're backing. And as a as a kind of final thought, um, what will success be for you uh, in, in in working with these companies? Oh, you know, we're we're here to sort of make a really big impact, right? And we can be a small part, um, but hopefully an, an integral part, right at the beginning of people's stories um, about you know for. <laughs> I'm just like you good, you good, you good. glasses are sort of pressing on the side of my head. Um, uh, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, what will, as a as a final thought, working with these companies and you know be, being part of their journeys, like, what will success be for you, both as a kind of a venture capitalist, but uh, a, a, as a person playing a role in this ecosystem? Well, at Blackbird, we're we're here to support those what you know, wild hearts with wild ideas and um, back people who want to make a really big impact um, on the world um, and be best at what they do. So I think. For me to have backed some of the companies that um, end up doing that um, will be hugely gratifying. Um, you know, living in a you know in in a better world and bringing up my daughter, um, you know, in New Zealand where um, it, you know there are more unicorns and more opportunities to work in startups and technology, and it becomes like the biggest contributor to GDP um, in Australia and New Zealand. You know, that's what excites me and and, and why I kind of get out, get out of bed every day. And so um, seeing more zeros in Rocket Labs definitely. Um, you know, what success looks like to me and, and, and being a part of that journey. Thank you so much for coming and sharing the story with us today. That's Sam Wong, partner at Blackbird VC. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you so much, Tina Tiller, for producing. And thank you very much for having us along in your ears and listening. Uh, thanks for being along with us this year. This is the last uh, for the year. Over the summer break, we'll be replaying some of our favourite interviews from the year. See you soon. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. 
brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.